Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. was October 24th, 2021, when we began this study of the book of Revelation. We are now in 2023 and have finally reached Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, 
is the focus of all kinds of controversy. And so I have been, for the last year, trying to prepare us for talking about Revelation 20. And I introduced it three weeks ago before we were so rudely interrupted by Christmas and New Year's. So today we're going to be returning to Revelation chapter 20. Don't turn there. We will be starting in Zechariah 14 eventually. Back on October 24th of 2021, I began by reading a poem for you all. Do you remember? Robert Frost, exactly right. The Road Less Taken. And I invited you all to engage in a bit of hermeneutics. Do you remember what hermeneutics are? Hermeneutics is the art, some would say the science, of interpretation. How are you going to understand things? And there are various different methods of hermeneutics, various different understandings, various different approaches you can take to how you comprehend language. For instance, you kids in the room, when your parents say to you, stop that, you immediately will engage in hermeneutics and decide, well, what does she mean by that? Does she mean actually quit it immediately? Or does she mean curtail this activity slightly until she's out of the room? That's hermeneutics. We interpret all the time. And when we get to Revelation 20, people interpret in a whole lot of ways. And so the approach that we have taken here at GCA is what's called a face value hermeneutic. And what that means is that we read the text for what it actually says. So starting here in 2023, it seems like a good time to review a little bit of why we do what we do the way we do it and see if it doesn't make sense to you. Words have meaning. Can we basically all agree with that? Yes. Whether you're talking about the definition, the denotative value of a word, or whether you're talking about connotation, the connotative value of a word, we agree that words have meaning. Words mean things. That's how we communicate. God communicates with people through language. I am convinced that God gave us language so that he could communicate with us. Now, the language that God uses is specific. He chose particular words because those particular words have the particular meaning that conveys what he is attempting to convey to us. In other words... When we read God's word, we have to take it at face value and understand that these are the words that he chose to use because these are the words that mean what he means to tell us. If the words that God uses don't mean what they say, then they can mean Anything. any old thing. And in fact, we have no idea what God was trying to say because he didn't use the words that actually said what he meant. 
Instead, he used these words, and clearly these words don't mean what they say, and that's when people get into all kinds of allegorical interpretation where the words on the page no longer mean what they say, and as a consequence, the meaning can be altered or redefined according to the ideas, the priorities, the background, the philosophy of the particular interpreter. Therefore, meaning changes according to the interpreter. I'm sure any of you who have paid any attention to Revelation 20 and listened to preachers preach about it have heard different interpretations of Revelation 20. Some people will tell you that the thousand years spoken of in Revelation 20 is actually a reference to the entire church age, starting from the time of Jesus' death until his eventual return. Now, that is a very, very common, very, very popular interpretation of the thousand years of Revelation 20. The question is, is that what it says? And the answer is no. That's not what it says. That's an interpretation of what is said. And then people glom onto that and say, well, that must be what it means. But then there are other interpreters who will tell you that that is really a reference to simply a symbolic large space of time. In fact, it's very common to hear people say, this is a mystical number, thousand years. It doesn't mean actual thousand, literal thousand, face value thousand. It means something more symbolic because after all, 10 is the number of completion in the Bible and thousand is 10 times 10 times 10. And therefore, it's a very spiritual number. How come it's not 250 times 4? 10 times 10 times 10 doesn't really mean anything except that it's a way to say what God said isn't what he meant. And then they'll tell you what he meant. So I have cautioned all of you for better than 21 years now to keep your spiritual antenna up And whenever somebody says to you, now what this means is, you need to pay really close attention to what they say next, and then go back and see whether what they interpretively have told you it means fits with the context of the actual text. And take a look at whether what it says is the same as what they are claiming it means. Because again, I'm going to drill this into your memories. If it doesn't mean what it says, then it can mean absolutely anything. And the meaning changes according to the particular interpreter. And that interpreter has his own baggage, his own background, his own denomination, his own system that he wants to defend. So the safest way to approach the word of God is to assume that God is able to communicate and that he is able to use the language that he created in order to transfer the knowledge that he wants to transfer to us according to the words that he chose to use. Is that too complicated? No. 
No. And so as a consequence, we approach Revelation 20 contextually, at face value, assuming that the meaning of the words is exactly what the meaning of those words is in every other context. For instance, if you recall, three weeks ago, I showed you in the book of Numbers where thousand is defined as 500 times two. So 500 times two or half a thousand is 500. That gives you a mathematic definition. So then if somebody asks you, what does it mean? The Bible has already defined the meaning. The meaning is 500 times two. And if you're going to say that thousand in Revelation 20 means something else than a thousand, you have to prove it from the text. Now, what we're going to see over the course of the next couple of weeks is that in the largest context of the whole Bible, the sequence that John is laying out perfectly fits with what the prophets have already predicted is going to be the sequence. That is why we are premillennial, because contextually, the Bible repeatedly lays out a series of events that are exactly like what we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, and particularly in Revelation 20. So when I say to you, context determines meaning, I'm speaking about much more than just the immediate context. I'm talking about the whole context of the Bible, the whole context of God's revelation of himself from Genesis to Revelation. If your sense of what Revelation 20 means doesn't fit the entire context of the Bible, then your meaning is, what's that word? Wrong. Then your meaning is wrong. And because there are so many different interpretive schemes that are implanted on Revelation 20, and because they come to so many different conclusions, they can't all be right. And so therefore, I feel comfortable saying some of them have to be wrong. It's axiomatic. And to me, the ones that are wrong are the ones that don't fit the context of the entirety of the Bible. So just a moment ago, I mentioned sequence. Let's take a look at the big picture for just a moment. I know I said to you, don't turn to Revelation 20, but go ahead. Keep your finger in Zechariah there. Go to Revelation 20, and let me just show you a couple of little examples of the sort of sequence that I am talking about, because it is really important to understand that there is sequence between Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. One of the popular interpretive schemes of Revelation 20 claims that at Revelation 20, verse 1, we are suddenly starting a recapitulation, one of seven recapitulations of the same events in the book of Revelation. And even the people who hold to that theory admit that if it can be proven that Revelation 19 comes before Revelation 20, then their scheme falls apart. So it is important for us to prove contextually that Revelation 19 does in fact occur 
in John's thinking, in John's description, it does occur before Revelation 20. Three weeks ago, I told you all to close your Bibles, and I read to you Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 and asked you the question, could you hear the natural chapter break where suddenly a recapitulation began? And you are all shaking your heads at me at this moment, and the people on the Internet can't hear your heads rattle, so they don't know that you are all in agreement at this moment that, in fact, you can't hear the chapter break. The chapter break is a theory, a concept that is dependent on the chapter markings that were added to the Bible a mere 500 years ago, meaning that the first 1,500 years, and particularly the first century church, when they received this letter from John, when they were reading the sequence that John was creating through the use of the word chi, then, and, through that sequence, as you were reading this letter, you would have not understood that suddenly John was recapitulating something. You would have just seen sequence. But even the context creates sequence. Not just the chi, but take a look at chapter 19, verse 20 for a moment. What we're told in Revelation 19, verse 20 is, the beast was seized... And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. And by those he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So at the end of that verse, where were the false prophet and the beast? They were particularly in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Okay, we're told that in chapter 19. Look over at chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In chapter 20, there is a direct reference to something that occurred in chapter 19. That is sequence. Do you understand my point? The only reason that you know in chapter 20 that the beast and the false prophet are in the lake of fire is because you were told it back in chapter 19. That is sequence. Those are the kind of internal indications we look for that demonstrate that there is actual sequence between chapter 19 and chapter 20. Now, if that is true, that chapter 19 comes before chapter 20, proves the premillennial scheme. Because in chapter 19, we've already seen things like Christ coming on a white horse and all his saints coming with him and him establishing his kingdom, ruling with a rod of iron. Before that was the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is sequence again in chapter 19 where we read that the saints who come back with Christ are wearing white robes, which we find out earlier in that same chapter they received at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is all sequential. John is speaking sequentially. And all of that occurs before the thousand years that are spoken of in chapter 20. 
So if Christ's return to establish his kingdom, and if the marriage supper of the Lamb, the joining of Christ and his church, all occurs before the thousand years, that's premillennial. There's no way around it. But the reason I said go to Zechariah 14 is because Zechariah 14 lays out the exact same sequence. And it's not the only prophecy in the Old Testament that does that, but we're going to start there. So turn to Zechariah 14, find the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Chapter 14 is the very last chapter. Go there. Starting right at verse 1, we're going to read the whole chapter, listen to the sequence. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Okay, so there's the overarching theme, which is God speaking to Israel, his people. He says, you have been conquered. A spoil has been taken from you. But there is a day coming from the Lord when everything that was taken from you is going to be given back to you and divided among you. Verse 2, for I will gather all the nations, all the Gentiles, against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Okay, so that is the entire history of Israel so far, synopsized in two verses that God has punished them. God has scattered them. But he began by saying, I'm going to restore you. And the things that have been taken from you are going to be given back to you. But then the Lord is going to stand up and fight for you in verse 3. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, the Gentiles, as when he fights on the day of battle. And in that day, that day when God decides to fight for Israel, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. That is the return of Christ to the planet when his feet touch the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives splits, creating a valley and a new waterway. Has that happened yet? No. No. But the sequence that's being built here is God is going to punish Israel. He's going to scatter Israel. Then he's going to fight for Israel. And part of that fighting for Israel is Jesus Christ coming back to the planet. Verse 5 says, And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. And yes, you will flee just as you have fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Does that sound familiar? It's just like we read in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. 
when Christ comes back and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, all his saints are coming back with him wearing the white robes that they've received at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm trying to stress here that the things we see in the book of Revelation are not new, are not unique. They're all predicted back here by the prophets. And they predict it in the same sequence that we see in the book of Revelation. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light and the luminaries will dwindle. Oh, that's exactly what we read in Matthew 24. The sun and the moon and the stars are not going to give their light. Then the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens. Verse 7, for it is a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about at the evening time that there will be light and it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half toward the western sea and it will be in summer as well as winter. In other words, that water, that living water is going to flow from Jerusalem constantly, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. What's the sequence? God is going to punish Israel by scattering them. He's going to fight for them. He's going to regather them. He's going to establish them at Jerusalem. When Jesus comes back, his feet touch the Mount of Olives. He fights for his people, and then he establishes his kingdom, and the Lord will be king over everybody, over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord's going to be the only one. There aren't going to be any other gods. There's not going to be any other worship. And his name will be the only one, and all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba until Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem itself will rise up and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanael until the king's wine presses. Okay, what's that describing? It's describing geographical changes. Not only are Jesus' feet going to touch the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives is going to split, but the whole area around Jerusalem is going to be flattened out into a plain You can go over there and have a look right now. That has not happened yet. But it's going to happen when Jesus sets up his kingdom. And once that plain is leveled out, Jerusalem itself, which is even to this day on a hill, on a mountain, higher than the whole area around it, which is why the whole Bible says that when you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is raised up. Jerusalem is going to be raised up even higher. Jerusalem is going to rule over all the plains and all the areas. Verse 11, and people will live in it, and there will be no more curse. The curse of sin, the curse of death since the time of Adam and Eve. Can you say that at this very moment, there is no more curse? Well, then you know what? That means that this period of time, the kingdom of Christ, when he establishes his kingdom, which is what's being described here, does not happen yet. It is not happening at this moment. There are people who will tell you that the thousand years of Revelation 20 and the kingdom of Christ is happening right here, right now. Except if it is happening right here and right now, you would have to say there's no more curse. And we all agreed there's still a curse Ipso facto, 
this is not the kingdom yet. Is that obvious enough? Yes, it is. Okay. People will live in it, and there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Does Jerusalem dwell in security at this moment? No. We'd have to say no. Now, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Remember at the beginning of this, he was going to gather nations, gather Gentiles to do war at Jerusalem? Well, once God conquers them, he's then going to require them to do this. All those who went to war against Jerusalem, their flesh will rot right where they stand, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouth. By the way, I think that's what Steven Spielberg was attempting to portray when they moved the Ark of the Covenant or lifted the the top of the Ark of the Covenant in that movie. You know the movie I'm talking about. Uh, E.T. Never mind. No, that's fine. This is going to be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot. While they stand on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of the one will be lifted against the hand of the other. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. This is going to be a sweeping plague of death where they fight against each other and kill each other. And then, says verse 16, and then it will come about that any who are left any of the people who didn't come to fight, any of those people of the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, Christ, in Jerusalem, the Lord of hosts, to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In other words, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, is going to be a requirement for all the Gentile nations the remnants, the leftovers, who didn't come to fight at Jerusalem, but they are part of the Gentiles still on the planet. Their requirement will be once a year to keep the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem as they pay homage to the king of Jerusalem sitting on David's throne. Has that happened yet? No. We don't have Gentile nations over in the Middle East all going to Jerusalem and keeping the Feast of Booths. What does that prove? No kingdom yet. This all happens in response to the fact that Christ comes back. His feet touch the Mount of Olives. He establishes his kingdom. He rules as king over all the earth. And then the nations, the Gentiles, have to keep the Feast of Booths. Verse 17 says, And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. And it will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations 
who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And in that day, again sequence, in that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses holiness to the Lord. And even the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar, and every cooking pot in all of Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. That's the end of the book of Zechariah. Why did I read that entire chapter for you? Because it creates a sequence. And it is the exact same sequence that you find in Revelation 19 and 20. The sequence is God punishes Israel, then he regathers Israel, then Christ returns to establish his kingdom, and having established it, there is a time of peace and prosperity on the earth, starting at Jerusalem, where Christ is ruling on David's throne, and then out to all the Gentile nations as Christ sits as judge and king over the whole earth. That's the sequence that Zechariah lays out. That's the sequence of Revelation 19 and 20. That is one of the many reasons why I read 19 and 20 sequentially, other than the fact that John has given us the literary clues that it's sequential, I mean, by the fact that he mentions things that happen in sequence and that he uses and, and then, and then, and then. But also contextually, as you read Revelation 19 and 20, you have to recognize that that is the same sequence that prophetically was laid out long ago. I'm just making the point that if you just read the Bible for what it says, let the language of the Bible say what it says, you end up premillennial. There's no other way to end up. And by the way, for the first roughly 150 to 200 years of the church, everybody was agreed on what was known then as kiliasm. Remember three weeks ago, we talked about the Greek word kiliad, kilioi, that mean thousand, that are translated thousand. That is their meaning, thousand. Well, that became kiliasm, the belief in a literal, genuine, thousand-year kingdom on earth. That was the prevailing understanding in the first couple hundred years of the church, particularly from those people who got their theology straight from John. It wasn't until a couple hundred years that people started looking at the Bible and saying, you know, maybe it doesn't mean what it says. Maybe we can twist a little bit of what it says And if you go back and look at the history of those other approaches to reading the Bible, you find that it is rooted in anti-Semitism. People who didn't like the idea that the Jews still had these promises of restoration, and therefore they said, let's start interpreting the Bible a different way. And the first time that you find that level of spiritualizing going on, it is clear historically that it is inspired by anti-Semitic views. Turn to Isaiah. We're going to have a quick look at Isaiah chapter 24 and a bit of 25 because it lays out, what a surprise, the exact same sequence. 
So Isaiah says it, Zechariah says it, John says it. Shouldn't we understand John based on what the previous prophets have already said? In other words, there's nothing new. There's nothing unique going on in the book of Revelation. It is simply establishing what the prophets have already said. Isaiah 24, uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We'll just take sections of it so that you can get a feel for it real quickly. Chapter 24, the first three verses. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste. He devastates it. He distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest and the servant like his master and the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. In other words, absolutely everybody is going to suffer under the distortion of the surface of the earth, the devastation that God is going to bring onto the planet. The earth, says verse 3, will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled for the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and it withers and the world fades and withers and the exalted of the people of the earth will fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant, And therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Does that sound a lot like 2 Peter 3.10? The whole earth is going to be devastated, burned up. The elements of the earth are going to be destroyed. Take a look down at verse 19. It's a continuation of this same thing. The verses that I've skipped over here are just a further description of the devastation on the earth. Verse 19, the earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high. Now, he's not talking about punishing the angels that did not leave their first estate. He's talking about punishing the wickedness. Remember, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. God is not going to let that continue forever. Eventually, he is going to punish that wickedness from heaven, and he is going to punish the kings of the earth. And they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon. Notice this this is really, really fascinating. Like prisoners in a dungeon, they'll be confined in a prison, and then after many days, they will be punished. Same thing we see in the book of Revelation. Then an angel comes with a chain, binds Satan, puts him into a pit, puts him into a prison, puts him into the bottomless pit, and then after many days, he's released and ultimately punished. Isaiah predicted the same thing here. Verse 23, and then the moon will be abashed and the sun will be ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign 
on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Okay, what was the sequence we just read? Punishment first and a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. That happens first, and then after that happens, Christ establishes his kingdom. It's the exact same sequence that we've been reading in the book of Revelation, particularly Revelation 19 and 20. It's the same sequence that we saw in Zechariah chapter 25 of Isaiah says, O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For thou hast made a city into a heap, and a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you, and cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For thou hast been a defense and a help for the helpless, a defense for the needy in distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall, like heat in drought. And thou dost subdue the uproar of the aliens, the nations, the Gentiles, like heat by a shadow of a cloud. The song of the ruthless is silenced. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all his peoples on this mountain. And a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow and refined aged wine. Okay, a couple of quick comments. Notice the sequence again. Time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again. Destruction of the earth, really bad stuff. Followed by establishment of the kingdom. Followed by a time of feasting and fine wine and peace and happiness on the earth. That sequence is the same sequence we read in Zechariah. It's the same sequence we see in the book of Revelation. Are you getting my point? I know I'm being very redundant here. I'm just showing you the Bible says what the Bible says, and it plainly says that the sequence of events prophesied by Zechariah, by Isaiah, and by John are the exact same events in the exact same order, hence premillennial. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine. This is a God who knows how to throw a banquet. And by the way, there's a lot of feasting and a lot of banquets in the Bible, and they're always a time of celebration. The three times that all of Israel had to go up to Jerusalem to keep the feasts, there were always banquets, there was always eating, there was always celebration. Well, the ultimate fulfillment of that is going to be the celebratory banquets that are laid by God himself, starting with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 7, and on this mountain he will swallow up, notice this, and on this mountain he will swallow up the covering that is on all the Gentiles, all the nations, all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched out over those nations. In other words, all nations of the earth are under a veil right now where they cannot understand the truth. Why is that? 
because Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is causing confusion at this very moment among all the nations, which is why he is put in the bottomless pit for a thousand years and a seal is put over him. And do you remember the particular reason that he is sealed into it? So that he can deceive the nations no longer. But at this moment, he is actively confusing nations. He is blinding people. At this moment, there is a veil over people so that they cannot understand the truth. But when the kingdom is established, one of the hallmarks of the kingdom and that time of feasting and banquets is that God himself is going to remove that covering that is over all the Gentiles, even the veil that is stretched out over all the nations. How is he going to do it? Put Satan in the abyss. It all fits together. It's all telling the same story. All you got to do is read it for what it says. Verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. By the way, is there still a reproach against Israel, would you say? Are there still people trying to bomb them into oblivion? Yeah, well, he's going to remove that reproach from his people, from all the earth. Why? Because the Lord has spoken it. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. And this is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest in Jerusalem on this mountain. By the way, Jesus talks about this exact same stuff that we just read out of Zechariah and that we just read out of Isaiah. Listen to Jesus speak of a future kingdom. He doesn't say the kingdom is now. He doesn't say the kingdom is established when I go to the cross. Instead, he says things like in Matthew 19, 28, he says, truly I say to you that you who have been following me, he's talking to his apostles, in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Hold on to that phrase. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. What glorious throne is he talking about? He's talking about the throne set up in Jerusalem that belonged to David, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. How do I know that? Because one of the hallmarks of Jesus sitting on his glorious throne is, you will also sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Is that happening now? No. No. Hence, no kingdom. When he comes back and establishes his kingdom and sits on his glorious throne, then those 12 are going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. In Matthew 25, starting at verse 31, Jesus makes a reference again to his glorious throne. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the Gentiles, all the nations will be gathered before him 
And he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and he will put the goats on his left. That is a judging of the nations, exactly like Isaiah said he was going to do, just like Zechariah said he was going to do. And he said he's going to do it when he sits on his glorious throne. And when he's sitting on his glorious throne, the 12 apostles that have followed him are going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That hasn't happened yet. Hence, the kingdom hasn't happened yet. He has not judged the nations, the Gentiles yet. He's going to when he sits on his glorious throne. That just hasn't happened yet. So for all the folks who want to say, kingdom now. The kingdom is present right now. David's throne is somehow magically in heaven, even though David never ruled from heaven. And that Jesus is sitting on David's throne right now at the right hand of God. And therefore, the kingdom is now. Then you got to show me this stuff. And you can't. So admit it, premillennial. Okay, now we can turn to Revelation 20. All of that was indeed introduction. Now we can start digging in to the text before us. And I saw an angel, Revelation 20, verse 1, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand, And he laid hold on the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer. Remember what we just read out of Isaiah. Part of this period of a thousand years, part of the peace of this kingdom that is established by Christ when his feet touched the Mount of Olives, Part of this includes judgment of the nations and removing the veil. And that is why he is going to take Satan out of the entire equation and throw him into the abyss and shut it and seal him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer. It is very, very common to hear people say, well, that whole binding of Satan thing began back at the cross because when Jesus died on the cross then he bound Satan in such a way that then the gospel could go out to the Gentile nations and that's why the gospel is spreading to this very day because Satan is in some sense bound and then you'll say to them what about the fact that he still seems very very active and they'll say well It's like a dog on a chain. He can only go so far because he's chained. He's still active, but he can only go as far as that chain will let him go. I have heard that analogy a thousand times. The problem is the text does not say that he is limited in his activity. And it doesn't say that his influence is chained and bound into the abyss. It says he is. In other words, he's utterly incapable of having any more influence on the earth. And that is why in Isaiah we read that that veil is taken away from the Gentiles because Satan himself is unable to deceive them any longer. So again, read the text. The text says 
he's bound so that he can't any longer do that. Look at Revelation 12. Do me a favor, if you would, Tom. Look up Revelation 12.9 for just a moment. Micah, if you would, look up 2 Corinthians 4. You're going to read verses 3 and 4. Jeff, if you would, 1 Peter 5.8, which you should be able to just recite by memory. Uh, Leon, if you would, 1 John 5.19. And the rest of you, just turn back a couple of chapters to Revelation 13 for a moment. Revelation 13, verse 2 The beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his throne and gave him great authority. So earlier in the book of Revelation, does it sound like Satan's still pretty active? Kind of does, doesn't it? I mean, he's busy giving power and authority to the beast. Look down at verses 7 and 8. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Sounds like he's still pretty active there, doesn't it? Tom, what have you got in Revelation 12, 9? And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so earlier in Revelation, he is described as the deceiver of the whole earth who's thrown down into the earth. Does it sound like he's bound? No. No, it sounds like he's actually quite active. Micah, I think you've got 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. Read that for us. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there are people to whom the gospel is veiled, in whose case the God of this world, who would that be? Prince of the power of the air. That very one has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they can't see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Sounds like he's still pretty active. Sounds like he has a lot of power and authority. Sounds like he's still blinding people and putting a veil over people. Jeff, 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What's he doing right now? He's prowling like a roaring lion looking to devour people. Seems kind of active. Lastly, 1 John 5, 19. I think that's you, Leon. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, John wrote that after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, Paul wrote Corinthians. And in fact, Peter was writing after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And they all took the time to tell us how active Satan was 
in deceiving people, in putting a veil over people so that they would be blinded to the truth of the gospel. Satan is going about like a roaring lion seeking to deceive and devour people and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that's all said after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So it's kind of hard to buy the idea that Satan is currently bound. Instead, I look at the world now and say, you know, he seems to be winning. He seems very, very active right now, which is why I am so glad for the first half of the verse that Leon just read, because it says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lays in the power of the evil one. So how long does it take? Uh, Satan is bound. He's put into the abyss. How long is he in the abyss, according to the text? Thousand years. Thousand years. You're not even reading a Bible and you knew that. It's that obvious. It's a thousand years. And based on everything else that I have said this morning and what I said three weeks ago, what does the word thousand years, that's two words, what do the words thousand years mean? 500 times two. 500 times two. <laughs> it means thousand. That's all it means. To this very day in science, if you have a kiliad of something, you don't have 999, you don't have 1022, a kiliad of something is a thousand. So it is a very specific word, it has a specific meaning. And it means a thousand. It means a particular amount of time. Now, we are often told that what thousand means is a large expanse of time, an unspecified, nonspecific large expanse of time. I began this morning by saying words have meaning. And specific words are used by God because he is trying to tell us specific things. If he didn't mean this, he'd have said something else. But this is what he said, because this is the meaning that he is conveying to us. So with that in mind, when John says thousand years, if he meant unspecified large amount, did he have that word available to him? Yes. Did he have the language available to him? where he could say, if he meant it, if he wanted to say it, if what he was trying to say is, and then Satan was put into the abyss for a large amount of time, not specific, but thousands, just a big expanse of time. If that's what he meant, did he have the words available to him to say that? Yes. Yep. Well, the answer is yes. So then why didn't he say that? Because he meant a thousand years. Here, I'll give you an example. All the way back in Genesis 24, we read about Rebecca. They blessed Rebecca. And they said to her, this is her family as they're sending her off, may you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands. And may your descendants possess the gates of all those that hate them. Two words are used there. The first time thousands is Allah which is a denominative of Aleph, and it means thousand folds, to bring forth thousands. And then they multiply that by of ten thousands, Rabbah is the Hebrew word, which means 
a great abundance, and so it is translated into English as a myriad. Okay, so the Bible knows how to say large indeterminate number. It also knows how to say 500 times 2. When it means a 1,000, mathematically and exactly, it uses the word 1,000. When it means large number, indeterminate number, it uses words like rebabal. It uses words like that, which mean myriad, or alaf, which means many elefs, which means thousands. Same thing in the book of Daniel. Daniel 11, verse 12. When the multitude gets carried away, his heart, the beast to come, is going to be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands Rebo, in this case, it's translated a myriad. It's in an indefinitely large number. He's going to cause thousands to fall, and yet he will not prevail. So does the Bible in the Old Testament know how to say large, indeterminate number? Answer is yes. Does the Bible in the Old Testament know how to say 500 times 2 equals 1,000? Yes. How do you know the difference? Context! Okay, so... Revelation 5.11, is John capable of saying large indeterminate number? Yes, he is. Absolutely he is. Revelation 5.11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myrios, myriads, tens of thousands, and thousands of thousands, Kiliarchos, which means the commanders of a thousand soldiers, which is really, really interesting, because on top of saying there were myriads, uncountable numbers, he says, and then I saw thousands of captains of thousands. I'm talking about a huge number here. So he knows how to say Kiliarchos. He knows how to say Murios. He knows how to express large indeterminate number. He also knows how to express kiliad, which has a particular meaning of 1,000. All you got to do is read the language of the Bible and let it say what it says. And if you just read it at face value and allow God to define his own terms, there's no confusion. What I hope you see so far this morning, and this is, by the way, right where we'll pick up next week, But what I hope you see so far is that Revelation 20, despite all of the debates, the arguments, the online craziness that goes on, as people argue about Revelation 20 and what it means, it means what it says, just like the entire rest of the Bible. When I read the word predestination, I say the word predestination. You know why? Because that's what it says. When it says election, I say election, because that's what it says. When it says all men are evil, depraved, I say all men are evil and depraved, and you women too, you're not getting off the hook. (laughs) Why do I say that? Because that's what it says. And why do I say, you know, John said that he saw a large indeterminate number, because that's what it says. And why do I say 1,000 years means 1,000 years? Because that's what it says. Why do I hold to what is commonly known as a premillennial view? Because that's what was predicted sequentially in Isaiah. 
That's what was predicted sequentially in Zechariah. And it fits perfectly with Revelation 19 and 20. The Bible is its own best interpreter. And it lays out for you everything you need to understand these things that are supposedly so mysterious in the book of Revelation that are not mysterious at all if you just know your Bible. So, I say, read your Bible for all it's worth. Everything that's in the Bible is there on purpose. God knows how to communicate. God knows what he's saying, and God knows what he has planned, and he has told us what he has planned. And we have one of two approaches when he tells us what he has planned. We can either take him at his word and say, well, that's what God said. Or we can engage in all kinds of hermeneutical trickery and tap dancing, coming to conclusions that are nothing like what the text actually says. And those theories and concepts and arguments and fights are so prevalent because people at some point have said, I know what it says, but I prefer this meaning. And there are so many different meanings out there that it's impossible for any of us to sift through all the possible meanings and decide who's right. Because everybody has a thought, has an opinion, has an approach, has a system they're defending. The best way for there to be unity within the church, whether we're talking about soteriology and how people get saved, whether we're talking about... Any other subject, including eschatology, the only way to have unity in the church and unity of mind where the Bible is concerned is to all agree that the Bible means what it says and it says what it means. And if you do that, surprise, it all makes sense with itself. Straight sticks. Straight sticks, yeah. So, I advocate and have for 21 years and do now again, read your Bible and stand on what it says. That's the essence of what faith is. Got it? Got it. Jeff. Number 21.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.